Well, hello everybody and welcome back to Midnight Mass on this very special holiday. Maybe one of our favorite holidays, not our favorite, but one of them, it's up there. Um, but, but that really connects very strongly with today's uh, selected cult subject matter. To introduce the subject, I'm going to introduce my co-host, the fantastic filmmaker and my fabulous friend. It's Michael Verratti. Well, hello, Peaches, and I cannot wait to pack up the kayaks in the van and take a trip to Camp Crystal Lake with you today because that's right, campers, we are celebrating Friday the 13th. The OG, the original. You can put on your hockey masks if you want, but I think that you should probably don a cable knit sweater in honor of Pamela Voorhees and the movie we're celebrating today. Yes, and and for those of you who are listening to this uh, uh, way after we've released it, just so you know, we are so fucking on it that we release <laughs> this on Friday the 13th. How cool is that? Oh my God. And um, I, have to, I have to give credit to Michael. Um, rarely do I have to do this, but I do <laughs> have to do this. <laughs> it was Michael, Michael looked ahead in the calendar. He said, uh, Peaches, there's a uh, Friday the 13th coming up. We should do a special podcast episode. Now, uh, Michael, get good good thinking for sure, but I wish you had given us more than, you know, a week's notice. Basically, Michael and I pulled this episode right out of our assholes. I know, and the funny thing is, is we do tend to be very ahead of the game. We have, re- we have recorded most of the season yeah. in advance, and then we were just like, oh shit, because neither of us look at calendars with regularity, I guess. We just kind of overlooked. Uh, but I'm glad we did. And, you know, honestly, in celebration of this amazing horror iconic film, you know, I think that this is this is one of those touchstone movies that, like, changed the conversation. Yeah, and I think I think you and I, with this episode, realized that the the, the Friday the 13th cult is so massive, and its impact, the, 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 the film's impact, it goes beyond one film obviously and the characters uh associated with this film um are are so um ingrained in in our horror genre minds that this might be part of a series who knows we may end up we may end up revisiting friday the 13th so this isn't the end all be all discussion but i think what you'll uh find with the episode is that it's a really interesting discussion um because of the sort of uh ability to look back on what this means to all of us uh, especially related to the release of a new book and the new the new book is really it's really uh causing i know you read it i know i read it um and uh i'll let let you introduce the book um but it definitely is is as much a part of this episode as the film itself yeah, I'm glad you said that. I was thinking before we uh, went on air that at the end of the day, this book is as much featured in this episode as the movie. And the book in question is the newly released The Final Girl Support Group by the amazing Grady Hendrix, who is you know the best-selling author of My Best Friend's Exorcism. And uh, he does the Paperbacks from Hell series. And he's, he's so cool. And he is truly a fan. And that's what, the, you know connects these two things is that Friday the 13th truly informed this book. And in this show, this podcast, where we not only look at these cult movies, but the ripples of what they cause 
This is one of the greatest examples because from one piece of art comes a reactionary piece of art that like really owes a lot of its DNA to Friday the 13th. Right. And it's and it speaks to the cult of these things. Yeah. The size of them, the popularity of them. And, you know, I think the slasher genre in general is a really interesting cult to look at. I am certainly a huge part of that cult. You know, this is this is the stuff I grew up on. I loved Halloween. I loved Friday the 13th. Absolutely worshipped A Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, and, you know, really enjoyed these films, that, you know, the, these franchises. Of course, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and on and on. And um, Friday the 13th being just so pure and so classic. And, you know, we talk some about uh, the, the, the music, the the purity of the the performances, the the way that it was presented, uh, especially with Tom Savini's special effects, it was so new and fresh and shocking. We we forget now that that so much of what we see in horror is derivative of, of a few of these early you know trailblazing films, and of course Friday the Thirteenth is is certainly one of those. Well, it's so wild to see the thumbprint of the original Friday the 13th as well as all of its sequels on the landscape of the genre because of course it makes sense to to make a horror story set at a remote camp in the woods. And maybe by today's lens of 2021 it almost feels usual or rote. But when this movie was made, it really wasn't a well that had been gone to very often. And they set the tone. And now you're seeing decades on, anytime a camp horror is told, it owes a debt of honor to Friday the 13th. And it's a chestnut that we keep returning to. American Horror Story, 1984, set at a camp. Fear Street, 1978, set at a camp. And those two couldn't exist without Friday the 13th. Absolutely. The first film is the only film that I've ever screened at a proper midnight mass uh, back in the day. And um, it was a, uh, a debaucherous, bizarre pre-show that I barely remember. These were back in my drinking days. Um, and uh, I, oh my gosh, maybe for maybe when we put out this episode, I'll, I'll dig up some of these photos. Oh, so embarrassing. So embarrassing. The photos of me at the Friday the 13th midnight mass. Um, but I, I want to say a couple things about Friday the 13th before we introduce our freaking legendary guest, who I have to say thank you, Michael, for, for bringing uh, her to our show because Michael's friends with this superstar uh, and, and invited her to the show. But before we introduce her, I have to say there's a couple things about Friday the 13th that, um, that are really special to me. One is I think it's one of the best horror one-sheets ever made. I think the one sheet for it is so cool, especially if you know the one sheet, you know that it's Jason's silhouette with the the woods, like with, you know, darkness all around the silhouette with the woods and the teenagers painted inside the silhouette. What I love about it is, is it's also a trick. The, yeah. the, the one sheet is a trick, right? Because the next thing I love, and spoiler alert, although fuck you if you don't know this, uh, is that... Betsy Palmer as Pamela Voorhees in the finale of this film is a tour de force and acting alongside our final girl, who just so happens to be our special guest, uh, as Alice, um, is, is maybe one of my favorite horror film finales of all time. Their performances, the monologue, you know, it is so 
wonderful. And it takes everything you thought was happening and flips it on its head. And I love that the one sheet ties into it because it is not a woman's silhouette. You know, they are misleading you intentionally. Um, I just love this first film. Oh, and by the way, Michael, I realized something. Because you introduced me to our, our first guest, I'm now one degree away from Kevin Bacon. You are. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I do want to say before we we go into the first interview that in a world of horror movies where there still is a deficit of of proper female villains, Betsy Palmer stands heads above, pun intended, uh, as, (laughs) as truly one of the greatest. And I think that when you look at that first movie, because slasher films, the, 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 the mold hadn't really been cast yet. So they're kind of looking to horror movies of, of the decade before and, and the decades before. And you can't not think about the, the move that Robert Aldrich did, casting prestige actresses from stage and screen and horror movies later in their career, and see Sean Cunningham going to this acclaimed Broadway star and asking her to put on a sweater and come out to the woods and be the killer, and she did it. So it's like, that's so cool. And, uh, you know, I think that there probably is some sort of um, deep dive if you want to go into the world of hagsploitation, which is a term that I have my own issues with. But Pamela Voorhees is, is one of a great line of mommy killers who straddles that line. She's a slasher and a classic killer all in one. Yeah, so good, so good. Well, why don't you introduce our very special guest? Um, and, and again, thank you. And listeners, this personally, this was just such a thrill for me because I got to meet someone I just grew up just loving. So this was exciting. Well, as Peaches alluded to, our first guest, and honestly, if you're gonna talk Friday the 13th, you have to talk to the person who was there and survived to tell the tale. She is the first final girl of the Friday franchise, and a dear, dear friend of mine, horror icon and legend, Adrienne King, and we're about to talk to her right now. Well, listeners, I am so excited to welcome our next guest because not only is she a horror icon, a final girl, and the sole survivor of Camp Crystal Lake, she's also an accomplished painter, a master sommelier, and now the narrator of an audiobook. Please welcome to the show the legendary Adrian King. Yay! Hi, Adrian. Yay! <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Michael, Verratti, and Peaches, my love. It's so wonderful to be here with you all. It's Both. so so exciting to be able to sit and talk to you, especially this week, because this episode is coming out the week of a Friday the 13th. And I know that's always a special time in your house and in the hearts of fans. Uh, and I guess it's a good place to start, because this year is 41 years of Friday the 13th. And... I mean, really, when you think about it, did you 
ever expect that you would, four decades and some change later, still be talking about this movie? Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I had to. I I couldn't resist. Considering we ran out of money a few times and and it was the just a little baby independent horror movie with very little, the, the script was 82 pages. So, you know, we were adding as we were going. Um, I was collecting Polaroid, continuity Polaroids off the set to make a collage just in case we never finished the movie. I'd being an artist, I figured I could take pieces of my script and the Polaroids and make a lovely collage, proving that, yes, indeed, I was in a horror movie that everyone forgot about. But uh, <laughs> nope, here we are. Surprise. Surprise, surprise. What a trajectory, though. I mean, it's got to be gratifying. Uh, it, it's it's shocking. It's beyond uh, gratifying. It's very humbling because a little did I think that our little baby horror movie with Alice, our sole survivor, first Friday final girl, would actually become a touchstone and actually her uh, disappearance in part two would actually inspire Grady Hendrix to create a love letter, incredible book called The Final Girl Support Group about Alice and the rest of the final girls. No, I never, ever expected anything along these lines. And it's very humbling and it's more than gratifying. And it's uh, it's just incredible. Well, I think for myself and for Michael and, you know, listeners should know that Michael and Adrian are our friends. They have a, a relationship that goes back and I'm just meeting you for the first time. And I'm such a huge fan and I'm so excited that we finally uh, get to meet. And I, I have to say, because... I'm going to actually find this clip and send it to you. I thought about it after um, we spoke before. Um, I actually uh, have friends, drag queen friends, who used to act out the finale of Friday the 13th for audiences with you and Betsy Palmer and do all, you know, do all the dialogue. And then it would go into this Pat Benatar song that they would lip sync. And um, I'm going to send it to you. You know, that's Heclina and Putanesca. But I mean, when you get to the level (laughs) of cult where... You specifically, because let's face it, how many girls are there in the Friday the 13th franchise? Probably hundreds, right? Hundreds at this point, right? Um, But you, I think you have some of the most important and legendary moments because you were the first, but also because you got that finale with Betsy Palmer. I mean, lest we forget, the first Friday the 13th was not Jason until the very, very end, which is the other iconic moment with you in the canoe. Um, but yeah, I, I just wonder all these years later, and with Grady's book coming out, do you feel like if if there were a Mount Rushmore of Final Girls, you know, you <laughs> would obviously be, be on it. And Jamie Lee Curtis would obviously be on it, um, you know, and probably Heather Langenkamp. You know, what does it feel like to have done this movie and then become iconic around the world? You personally, specifically. Going back those 40 odd years, it's it's very, very. Is there a word beyond amazing? Is it a word, <laughs> are there a word uh, beyond just fabulous, especially when you consider the beginning of my career after Friday the 13th and in the middle before Friday the 13th part two. And then after that, 
I actually encountered a stalker, which kind of put my entire career on hold. And I went into the land of voiceovers and the recording booth became my my safety net. It became my my uh, the only place that I could work and not feel like perhaps someone was watching me that shouldn't be watching me. And so uh, to get to 41 years later, or say even 25 years after that, and reconnect with my fans for the first time at a convention and find out that there was actually a following for Friday the 13th. I mean, social media changed the world, obviously, that's an understatement. But through the conventions and that that's how I was able to reconnect with my fans, explain what happened, why I disappeared from on camera, and then allowed me to actually finally feel the joy and all the good that Friday the 13th had in store for me. And that included meeting Michael Verratti mm -hmm. and uh, Bart Mastentarnardi, and I can't forget Alan creating Tales of Poe and playing the Queen of Dreams. I've been able to do so many more things having realized that there was a safe place within the industry now that we have stalking laws and now that the world is aware that people do need in this industry or in any industry sometimes we need a support group which right. brings us right back to Grady Hendrick's book but uh it is extraordinary now to be able to travel the world in probably, uh, I've, I've been to all continents now, so, so I can say that. And the and even the penguins were fans, you know? <laughs> uh, it's crazy. It's wonderful crazy. Well, Adrian, I have to ask because you have told this story in interviews before about exactly what you're saying. You, you pulled back and you uh, did voice work and loop group work and ADR work for shows like Melrose Place. And after, uh, for a period of time, that that was your your solace and, and your kind of place in the world in terms of acting. And you weren't fully aware of what was going on until you were contacted for a convention. And I've heard you tell this story that then you went to the convention and became aware. But I've always wanted to ask you because you're in the first movie that, of course, launches a franchise. So there had to have been every year when you see this new trailer on TV or you're driving past a theater and you're like, oh, there's another one. You had to kind of know, right? Like when you're like somewhere and you're like, oh, there's eight now. You had to know that you launched a ship in some capacity, but you didn't quite know that it was as big as it was. Is that? Well, yes, I knew it turned into a billion dollar franchise that I was aware of. You'd have to kind of be under a rock not to realize that. Right. But in terms of career, I was laying so low that I didn't even want to know mm -hmm. what was going on in that corner of the world. I love the energy of being on a set. Right. And that comes from very early in my childhood. I was always surrounded by such incredible actors and directors and producers who were always so giving to me. And as a child, I just soaked it up and it and becomes almost like a drug in terms of, you know, once you feel that you want more and more. So 
I had to find a way. I was not going to allow this one demented, psychotic, insane person to take away all the joy and the passion that I had for the arts. And so I fell into my painting as therapy, but I always knew I wanted to remain in the business. And so my agent said, okay, we'll, we'll totally, uh, you know, you did your own voice work for years. I worked with Mel Blank before when I was a kid, you know, I, I worked with Burgess Meredith. I've worked with some of the best voiceover people. And like you said, looping for seven years and whatever. But it wasn't until Peter Brackey, who wrote Crystal Lake Memories, found a way to unearth me (laughs) through a friend of my husband's that explained to me that there truly was a three generational fan base for Friday the 13th. That included me. And I was like, oh, hmm, uh, really? And that was very surprising. So So uh, he was the one who encouraged me to go to my first convention, which was the Chiller Convention in New Jersey in 2004. That's the first time I met Bart and he had students with him. And uh, (laughs) all I can tell you is I was so blown away because there were, it seemed like thousands of people. And it was January 6th, it was freezing outside and people were lined up around the hotel outside or the convention center and all the way up the, the L escalators I remember and I didn't even have one eight by ten to my name they had to run out to Kinko's and (laughs) and get eight by tens to sign so uh, you can well imagine uh, it was brand new to me but as soon as I felt safe and uh, I didn't know going in how I was going to feel because this was a big deal for someone who hadn't been on stage for so so long but Peter Brack, he really assured me that my fans adored me and wanted to know, they needed to know what had happened to me because they would mm-hmm. care right. and it would make a difference in my world. And sure enough, when I did share some of the story that day, and I remember Betsy being on stage with me, Betsy Palmer going, what? You, you had a what? A stalker? And it's like, when did that happen? And it's like, oh, Betsy, please, you know, and it was like, I shared enough of it that I could hear sobbing in the audience. And afterwards, I always say to people, that's the time that I felt that last piece of my heart heal that I thought had already been healed through massive amounts of therapy. But Obviously, there was still something missing and my fans did it for me. And so that's why I have Mm. this incredible relationship with my campers, because uh, we share in that journey. We've all all of us have gone through some sort of trauma in our life. Right. Mm. And and so I think it's important for me to share the fact that yes i went through some horrific times and parallel to my character alice who survived the unthinkable in a time when uh she had no support at camp i was running around uh, doing my thing with no support in new york city and it was tough and now life is good you know Um, and so i tell people you hang in there because we're all survivors if you're listening to me now you're a survivor because no one gets through this life without going through hell in one form or another we're all tested and some of us don't have the support group we need and it's important to reach out and find people because we know now through social media 
it can be good. It can be horrible. Yes. But <laughs> if we're if we're careful, and we surround ourselves with chosen people who are, are we know are friends, we know are positive, we know give us strength, then it's beneficial for all of us. And that's really my message. Forty one years later, I'm I'm here to prove to you that your darkest nights can get better and just hold on because um, eventually the sun comes out. That is such a great message. And I have to say, oh my gosh, I have so much to say about what you said, because everything you're saying, I'm like really interested in. And I think a lot of people don't understand. And I've only gotten it in small, small doses um, because of of being Peaches Christ and being a drag performer who's um, into horror and cult movies. There's this wonderful side to it where I connect with people all over who don't feel like they fit in. And this discovery of me connects with them once in a while. I'll connect with someone who isn't mentally correct in the head and doesn't understand this is a character and, you know, this is a creation and it's part of my performance art, as as obnoxious as that sounds. Um, But that, you know, sometimes it can get a little creepy. And so I tend to be really private. I have a pretty small private life and, you know, a small circle of chosen family and, and friends. Exactly. You know, and I've had friends, actually, Cassandra Peterson, you know, a good friend of mine who's Elvira, had a very scary situation. And I think what people don't realize is a lot of us who are in the horror universe are exposed to some maybe folks who their wires get crossed about who we are and what we represent and obsessions kick in. And, you know, it can get very scary. And I think your story and your honesty about it I'm so glad that you get to enjoy, you know, the other side of it, that you get to enjoy your fans now and get to enjoy the success of these films. Also, I was—I had to say that I think Bart is one of the sexiest people I've ever met. <laughs> so I, I don't know why I feel the need to throw that in, but, you know, 2004, uh, uh, wow. Bravo, bravo to that. <laughs> <laughs> right, but I, I wanted to say, and kind of circle this all around to this really fascinating thing of Grady writing a book that connects so deeply and personal to your story. And, you know, uh, of course we're talking to Grady, but but really how did it feel for you to meet an author who's written the story that really is about you essentially, the Lynette character, even though there's a character named Adrian, right? The Lynette character is yes. actually more yes. the real Adrian. It is, there's no doubt in my mind, Grady wrote me a love letter. Mm. Uh, the, the most beautiful love letter. Uh, he could not have imagined how it touched me and how cathartic it was for me to, as well reading it. He, he reached, actually, we haven't met yet, believe it or not. Mm. Um, we've, we've spoken and I feel like I know him and obviously I feel like he knows me very well because he was able to get into my head and actually put into words on paper the anxiety and fear that developed as time went on and no one was taking anything seriously. You know, the authorities were, uh, there weren't any laws. They couldn't do anything until I was actually physically assaulted, which is always a wonderful thing to hear. But um, basically I hid out and, and Grady creates his central character, the narrator, 
that I am so blessed to have had the gift of narrating this book because honestly, it was what I felt and I was able to embrace that fear and get it out in a different way that so many people can identify with because it's just, it goes beyond final girls. It goes You can even relate this to the pandemic, the fear of walking out of your house, Mm -hmm. you know, the fear that somebody's going to sneeze in your face. That's not, you know, if you're not wearing a mask. I mean, it's so relatable beyond final girls right now. What he gave to me was just this incredible thriller horror movie that's palatable to such a larger, broader audience. And when I say that, it's so poignant. And I get to, uh, to actually narrate all the girls, which in its own way was like, whoa, because <laughs> quite honestly, <laughs> once I had to audition, I had to do a blind read, uh, which was fine for me because, I mean, this was a big deal. And I wanted to make sure, even though I've had decades in the recording booth, you know, uh, I just had to prove it to a couple of publishers that I had what it took. And Grady was like, oh, my God, I want you. And I'm like, I'd love to do it. I feel in it. She was written for me. I have to do this. And then when they said, yeah, I went, oh, shit. I'm going to have to hyper focus so bad. I have ADD to begin with. Mm. So to be able to take all of these characters and get to know them so well, you know, that you're actually sleeping with them and getting inside of their head so that you can portray each one in their own little idiocentric world. It was just like, okay, this is going to be the ultimate bookend that I've been searching for. Thank God for the rave reviews and my fans and everybody's been saying it's fabulous and that I brought the real heart and soul to this character. It's because I truly lived this life. I was looking over my shoulder for a year and a half. My apartment I had bars on the inside and four locks, you know, and I lived in a doorman building. And for Grady to be able to work this into a fabulous story and a script of survival and a happier ending, as he puts it, for Alice, God God bless him. Um, it's just an enormous. And I know you've read it. And I want to know what, what your feelings are in terms of the audience, how they're going to react to this. Well, my sense, and I, I told Grady this because I was very lucky. Grady sent the book several months before it came out and I, I got a chance to read it. And you and I actually discussed via email. What I really like about this is that it sort of is a love letter to this genre and to horror movies but it is also a reckoning. You know, that's the thing that like when you're you're halfway through the book and you're like, oh, I get that. That's a reference to Friday the 13th or to Silent Night, Deadly Night and all of their names or references to the actors who play them or blah, 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 blah. And so like, if you love this stuff, there's a lot there. And then, and then the other shoe drops in the best way possible. It then asks the question, okay, well, why are we putting the men who terrorize these women on lunchbox and on t-shirts and, you know, and celebrating them as characters, which of course, because they're fictional, we can understand and can enjoy, but Grady is willing to go under the surface and explore that phenomenon. You know, 
why are we so into a world that keeps creating final girls? And I think that that is powerful. And I, as someone who loves these movies, but also loves the study of this genre and why we are connected to it, I thought it was extremely powerful. I mean, you know, Wes Craven, and I have quoted this many times on many podcasts, so someone out there is like, ugh, here he goes again. But Wes, <laughs> Wes Craven once said, that we don't see horror movies for fear, we see them for catharsis, for release. And I think that this particular piece is kind of a long overdue release. Yeah, I would agree with well Michael. Well said, Michael. Actually, I don't know that I could say it much better than Michael, other than to say in this genre, which has been going strong, I mean, really strong since the 70s, um, and especially the 80s when it just exploded, right? Uh, thanks in part to Friday the 13th. I think what we're finding now is it's challenging to say something new or to do something truly new. And so I feel like, especially when it comes to the niche genres within the genre. So within the genre of horror, we've got the genre of the slasher film. And it's been pretty, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not going to say it's beating a dead horse at this point, but you know, like <laughs> it is, you know, Wes Craven, again, very brilliant, very brilliant filmmaker who came along and made Scream, which was a meta version. And then, you know, and he did New Nightmare, which was an incredibly meta version, you know, where the act, and I think Grady's book does something on that level where it's a very new idea. And by centering it around the, the women, there's this sort of feminist celebration of it, but also a feminist question to us fans mm -hmm you know, who I believe are sensitive, empathetic people, you know, most of us who love horror, it, it does ask the question, like, why, why are we, what is it, what, what is this fantasy about? And, um, you know, it's funny, Michael, you bringing up that notion that, that Grady raises about the lunchboxes and the idea of, of merchandising. And of course, someone like Freddy Krueger or Jason Voorhees is going to, you know, sell more merch, especially when you deal with the target demographic of, of young boys. Right. right. Um, but I will say this. There were us fans out there who have been waiting for a book like Grady's because my, I remember when they put out a poster when Dream Warriors came out and it was Heather Langenkamp and and Freddie had, you know, he was kind of scooping her up from behind. And it was the fact that it was the two of them. And that was my favorite poster because she was as important to me, you know. And so I feel like in and, and the finale with Adrian and, and Betsy, you know, that to me was phenomenally satisfying and different and and still stands out as being different. I think Grady's book really celebrates that, you know? Yeah. I totally agree with you. And I think the, the fact that, like you said, all of a sudden he drops the question, why are right. we still so enamored with the final girl? What is it about the fact that the monsters are the ones who are celebrated and and the final girls just like are lucky if they get to a sequel you know mm -hmm. <laughs> um why do we still have like in this world that we have you walk out the front door and it's horror i mean what more can we do to scare ourselves than what's going on in this world right now i think we've kind of tackled it all and i think great what grady's took the opportunity to do for all of us is i think we're looking for some sort of answers right now 
Mm-hmm. What is it in our entire world? And horror has always been a mirror of what's going on in society, I believe. It's a, a reflection going back to George Romero. Yeah. Um, what is it that's wrong with our society? Is Does it go all the way back to when we're little boys and girls that makes little boys want to hurt little girls? Does that make, uh, is that where it comes from? Does it come from daddy, what he does to mommy? Does it come from mommy not giving her daughter enough of a sense of worth? Or does that come from the father? Where does it all come from? And how do we deal with it? I mean, when Grady takes the doctor, the doctor of all of these final girls, the therapist, and then she's the one who knows everything, but the surprise is, oh my goodness, does she know that much, you know, because I can't give it away, but where did it come from? And uh, it makes us question. And I think it's very important to answer those questions now because it's reflecting on what's going on in this world. Where is it coming from? Can we change it? Is it too late to even think about changing it? And the one thing that Grady also does is he says the one thing about the monsters and the final girls is it, it's up close and personal. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And that's interesting too. It's all about that wanting to be up close and personal. Does it have to be something that ends in death? Does it have to be something that's violent in nature? Or is there a middle ground somehow that we can actually figure this out? Well, I think you're right about the the world being a terribly scary place. And I think in some ways, that's why we won't see the end of death and horror because like Wes Craven, like you brought up, Michael, I think it's cathartic. So we are unable to deal with all of the real life horror around us. So tuning into these fantasies and kind of having the worst of the worst played out before us, you know, um, violently and awfully is actually how we're we're dealing with or are psychologically processing the news because, you know, the world is so terrifying. But you brought up sequels and the fact that there are sequels. And so I did want to ask about uh, part two because, of course, you show up in part two and what that experience was like because I, I know it was unique for you. You didn't really know much about what you were even showing up for when they asked you to, to do part two. Right. Well, it was definitely a shock. And in a nutshell, as fabulous as part one was, that's how ugly part two was. Ugh. So, um, yeah, I was going through, the, like I said, the stalker kind of emerged very quickly after the first one was released. I really didn't get a chance to enjoy too much. And so um, being that there was no support system at the time and um my agents managers were all like this is nothing we talk about this is all very hush hush I don't know if I told you this Michael you'll appreciate this uh you might appreciate this two features my mother actually said well maybe you should go talk to a priest and it's like oh yeah (laughs) great now there's a good idea that should help but seriously uh Part two, the stalker was around somewhere. I was letting everybody handle everything else. I had said to the producer and director, uh, whatever you need 
for me to bridge to part two, I'm here for you. Um, I heard rumors that, you know, Jason was going to become the villain. And I remember Sean Cunningham saying he totally disagreed with that. But I, I had other things I had to worry about, like right. uh, my back. So therefore, uh, I didn't get a script. They sent a car for me. But you have to understand on the first one, the script was so thinly improv a lot. And mm. so I figured, okay, improv, that's, you know, that's cool. I can handle it. If there's a script, I can memorize, whatever. That's how I worked on the first one. Sean, he let me watch my dailies, for God's sakes. It was fabulous. Mm. Uh, that doesn't have, that's a gift to a young actress, you know? Right. And so uh, part two, I show up and surprise, uh, the movie's already been shot. It's the last night. It's a it's a night shoot. I show up. It's a skeleton crew. Uh, I have no clue what's going on. I never even had a wardrobe fitting, which explains that horrendous Kelly Green monster outfit they had me in. Um, <laughs> seriously. And uh, like I said, I get there and Steve Miner says, OK, you're on the phone and you're talking to your mom. Go. I'm not exaggerating. That was it. Wow. Then we get to the uh, the shower and they want me to literally strip and like, uh, you see, you see the clothes flying, right? It was like, no, I didn't do that on number one. I'm not doing it on number two. Come on, man. And then, you know, yeah. then I get into the, you know, the, the shower that they want it. Okay. No, we're not doing that either. No, they tried every trick quick, quick, quick. You know, it's only a, Let's go. And like I said, skeleton crew, uh, no, the uh, props guy wasn't around. The, the fellow who's supposed to check the prop master, he wasn't there. Well, that explains so, the terrible contents of Alice's fridge. Like, I have to say just right? briefly here, when you open the fridge, I'm like, what the fuck? She's got like two bottles of milk and what? Like, it's like and it's Lenders bagels. Oh, you know, and a and a head, <laughs> right? Yeah. And there's a head in the fridge. No, and then the whole cat thing, you know, that was improv. You want? Oh, you're hungry, you know? Like, um, what am I supposed to do with this? And then seriously, the first time that the uh, the and it was, it's people say, "What Jason attacked you?" Well, no, there was not a Jason to be found. Uh, the, I'm guessing the guy who didn't check the prop probably shoved it in my face, and it did not retract. So, I had a hole. Um, uh, right there on my face that they had to aim for the second time. The good news is that little piece of film shows that it was totally a flesh wound because my whole thing all these years is Alice was not killed. How did Jason find her? It was a post-traumatic dream and God knows I've had them and I know how lifelike they are. And I've always said Alice is alive and well, living in the woods, painting and drinking fine wine. And uh, <laughs> that's and that's always been my story because I I never got a script where it said Alice is off, Alice dies. I mean, nothing, no proof. And so now I have proof, perhaps, that Alice may be alive. Oh, how interesting. Oh, wow. Yeah, you... we'll save that for later, though. Okay. Well, Adrian, I have to ask, you know, we, while we were talking about the final girl support group, 
we talked about how both this is a love letter and celebration of fandom, but also a, a reassessment of fandom and how important and impactful that is. And, and one thing, since you went to that Chiller Theater event in New Jersey in 2004, you have been able to see is, is just the sheer devotion of fans. And I know that you've had some really, really wonderful experiences. Uh, and to the degree that you did an event, a few events where you got to return to the camp to meet some of your fans. Sure. Could, you, could you tell us about that? Sure. Um, Stacy Lee and Chris Carbauer, who are my uh, managers, were able to talk to the Boy Scout leaders who run the camp where we film Camp Nobi Bosco, which is in Blairstown, New Jersey, beautiful camp. And the Boy Scouts have kept it immaculate. And uh, she was able to convince them uh, that it would be a win-win if they allowed and charged our campers to come and see where Friday the 13th was filmed because uh, everyone who's a fan would love that experience and, uh, and be very, very grateful. And meanwhile, the Boy Scouts would earn a ton of money. And so, yes, the first time, the first weekend we went there, we, I believe we made a quarter of a million dollars for the Boy Scouts wow. that uh, they shared with neighboring camps. And it was just, like I said, a win-win. The, the campers were so happy. Everybody felt like they were reliving their childhood, including me. It was, it was just incredible. The nostalgia, I just felt like I was right back there in 1980, running around, up and down. It all looked exactly the same. Um, it's, it's called uh, crystallaketours.org or .com, I'm not sure. And I'm going back at the end of this, uh, the third weekend, I think, of this month to go back to camp again. And uh, this time it'll be with Ari. So it'll be the first time we're both back there to recreate the canoe scene. And everybody gets to do photo ops with us down there. And the best part is that you get to watch Friday the 13th at night as the sun is setting on the lake. <gasps> and the crazy part for me is that the first time I went there to be watching that movie and remember that the last time that I left that beach, I didn't even know if we had a finished movie or not. If wow. you can believe that, you That's know, so wild. because after that, they had to wait for the film to see if they captured all of this. And we tried three times to get to that part. And the last time was the, uh, the second week in October. Uh, I still have my 1979 date book and all of the stuff because of the collage. Remember that collage? Yeah. So yes. I have all that stuff in, a, in, a, in a, a box that I found when I moved up here to Southern Oregon. And sure enough, it says like October uh, the 12th, which was a Friday, was the last time that I was in that uh, lake and pulled it in the water. Oh, wow. So <laughs> and there I am watching the finished movie with 200, 300 fans on the beach. It was just the most surreal, full circle moment one could ever imagine happening, happening in their lifetime, you know? That is magical because, yeah, when you yeah, left, you left the beach, 
you probably didn't think you'd ever be back to that beach, right? Like you were, it was one and done and, uh, you know, but then to have all of that magic come full circle. Now you mentioned yeah. that you're up in Oregon now. And um, yes. one of the things that um, some of the fans may not know, some of the campers, although I'm, I'm guessing a lot of you do know that you're actually uh, responsible for creating a Crystal Lake wine. It came out of nowhere. It wasn't on my vision board or anything. I've always loved fine wines. Michael can attest to that. He does. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, I married into a family who loved even finer wines. So I traveled the world and learned so much about wines. And then we move up to wine country in Southern Oregon. And lo and behold, our favorite winery, uh, which is a privately owned, family owned and, and operated called Valley View Winery in, in Jacksonville, Oregon. Well, they were huge Friday the 13th fans. Oh. <laughs> and I actually had a, uh, an art show at the winery, pre-Chris Lake Wines. And, uh, and we got to talking and we were part of the wine club. And one day, one of the uh, brothers in the family said, why don't you join our family? And I went, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not knowing what that would mean at all, but I figured fine wine, I'll join. <laughs> That's great. That is great. Um, and so it evolved. That was like 2008 or nine and it evolved into and I happen to have my favorite survivor Syrah <laughs> and can, can you see Alice in her canoe survivor it, Syrah yes for all of and, you who are listening and can't see it is a beautiful bottle of wine with gorgeous art now did you do the art I do all the paintings ah, on the label. I started in another whole thing that people have kind of followed me in, but I was the first one who painted my own labels and they're all Friday the 13th genre related. Mm. Um, I have cabin A, Sevignon. <laughs> those cabin B's almost ready. Yeah. And then I have Moonlit Chardonnay and I had Midnight Merlot. And uh, gosh, go on my website. They're all up there. And um, we have every so often we'll change Jason's choices, Alice's choices, because every year we get a new vintage. And I'm hoping it's tough. We can't ship this summer. It's too darn hot. The temperatures are too extreme. But we're going to get all those orders out as soon as the, uh, the temperatures drop because wine pops when it's hot or cold. So mm. we have a limited window. But you can always come up here to the uh, my Crystal Lake Wine Corner in uh, in uh, Valley View Winery, and I hold court. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so! I, I'm going to take you up on that. So, what is the oh, URL for your website? Just, oh, I will. What's the, if my people... paintings are all hanging there? It's so much fun. Uh, my website is AdrianKing.com or CrystalLakeWines.com. Perfect. And I post. I paste post on social media too so instagram i'm i think official now <laughs> uh -huh. but um it's one of those things honestly that evolved we just started with the uh a simple white and a red and we put it out on facebook and it totally blew out their website so we knew we were on to something and now it's just been word of mouth because we don't have to spend anything between social media, word of mouth, because the wine is so fine. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, you know, uh, this week is all a great week to raise a toast, especially with Crystal Lake Wines, because it is Friday the 13th. And for listeners who have been paying attention, we usually release it Tuesday at midnight for a Wednesday debut. But you probably noticed we debuted a little late this week, Thursday at midnight for Friday the 13th, because, of course, we're here with Adrian to celebrate. Uh, And because it's Friday the 13th, it's not just a celebration of of the movie of yesteryear, but I hear, Adrian, that you have news about something else that came out today. Today, today. So, remember when I told you that Alice was alive and living in the woods and drinking Survivor Syrah and painting her beautiful paintings? Yes. Well, not only did Alice narrate or Adrian narrate the final girl support group. Sometimes I get them confused. Um, (laughs) Alice has all the best qualities of Adrian, not vice versa, but here we go. Alice, it's reported, will be making a comeback this evening on YouTube in a little fan film that I'm not allowed to mention right now, but can I tell you what it's called? You can, uh, if if you feel comfortable sharing. Well, now you can't divulge until Friday the 13th, anyone who's listening. (laughs) So it's called Jason Rising. All right. Now, all I can tell you is you're going to be so happy and that's all I can tell you. Well, I just love that because you said it's a fan film and that this is you. Like you said, you love to connect with your fans. You love to connect with the culture. And as we know, or people who follow the the kind of ongoing saga of Friday the 13th, the, the franchise itself is still held up somewhere in legalese. But the right. fans, the fans love these movies and they love these characters. And if you want new Friday content, you don't have to wait for Paramount. We've seen Womp Stomp films make things like Never Hike Alone and uh, Never uh, Hike in the Snow, which I love both of those. And I know you know- Who's behind this one, Michael? Is that them? What? Congratulations. That's so cool. That's so cool. Well, and now Jason Rising and uh, they get to celebrate Friday the 13th with Alice and Adrian King. And we're so glad that we got to as well. That's that's well, it. We're we're, we're just you a know, miracle. I think we the the midnight mass audience, the cult of Friday the Thirteenth. The agenda we need to push is give us back our Alice, and you know <laughs> I think we can we can campaign for that. We got to see Laurie Strode return later in life, and we now know that Alice is alive and somewhere in the world. So give us back our Alice. We need that movie, the the feature film. Um, so Adrian will be back on set no time. Absolutely. Well, here's the thing. These are very, very creative. You know, the fans, and like you said, Womp Stomp, James Sweet uh, from Red Crow Films, very devoted, passionate filmmakers. You, You may not know their names, but obviously they're coming up the ranks and the script was really quite fine. So like you said, we don't have to wait for the big studios. And plus, between you and me, Michael and Peaches, Hollywood's never going to let me play on the big screen anymore. So I'm satisfied. I'm very satisfied to be where all my fans can have the ending they're looking for, or at least 
the sequel they're hoping for because every other person in my line is going, I cried so hard. It was so unfair when Alice died in part two. And I said, no, no, wait, wait, hold on. <laughs> she's, it only took 40 years, but she's coming back. So, <laughs> so, you know, in that case, I'm very happy about that. But look what I did get as a gift also from Grady. I got to voice all of these incredible women in the final support group and a couple of men too, which is pretty fun. (laughs) (laughs) Hollywood will never let me be part of that game either. And that's okay because I got to narrate that at Blackstone Audio here in my backyard in Ashland, Oregon, which is home to Oregon Shakespeare Festival. I love being up here. I can always fly down to LA if they invite me, but I'm very content in my own little world here. And I just want everyone to know it's all just so beautiful. You just take your passion, see where it leads you, and you'll always be surprised. This was a gift I never expected. So I am joyous. And I think I, I don't know if I said this, but I never expected my bookend to actually be a book. I'm just so, uh, so overjoyed between having Grady's book and having this fan film that came from the love of the fans. You don't beat that. The people who make the decisions in Hollywood are bankers. They're not moviegoers. If they are, they don't care about what the movie is as long as it makes money. My fans care about the story that they've grown up with. And it's wonderful. It's just a wonderful, again, another full circle for Alice. Absolutely. Or Adrian, whoever you want. <laughs> well, and, and as we, you know, say good night and thank you for joining us and, and giving us your time. It's, it, it's such a great note to go out on this celebration of fan fandom and celebration of you. And I just want to remind listeners, because this is what Midnight Mass is all about, this worship, this love, this celebration that, yes, you know, that part six said Jason lives while life told us that Alice lives. And that's what we're here for this week. Oh, that's happy, so sweet. Happy Friday the 13th, Adrian. Thank you for joining oh, us. Michael, thank you so much. And Peaches, thank you. I can't wait until we can all do this together and do a real hug instead of a virtual hug and pop some Crystal Lake wines. Yes. yes. Oh, I would love that. Right. Yes. Well, thank you so much. Okay. Oh my God. Michael, that was so cool. Thank you again for introducing me to Adrian King. I feel really grateful that I've been able to meet so many different people that I've admired, you know, as a kid growing up. And certainly Adrian King is an icon, is a uh, strong woman in the horror genre who I've always wanted to meet. And it was just lovely, lovely, lovely to get to talk to her. So thank you. Uh, well, it was my pleasure. I adore Adrian, and what I really love uh, about Adrian is she sees the value and the power of these stories. You know, a lot of people when they are in these movies, uh, especially during that era where they didn't know the impact of the zeitgeist, they make it and then they move on and they forget or whatever. Uh, and Adrian's story is so personally tied to Friday the 13th. 
And the trials and tribulations that come with that, she could have easily eschewed this and, and not wanted to have anything to do with it. And instead, she sees the power, she sees the catharsis. And now that she uses what she learned from it as a message to help other people, I think is truly amazing. And uh, it shows the depth of, of what these movies can do, especially because you and I both know when you grew up during that video store era, right? And you would rent a slasher film with the like gross cover. You had your your parents or your friends' parents or the people in the neighborhood like, ugh, you're watching that? Like as if you were watching something with no moral value whatsoever. And now we just had this really meaningful conversation with a woman who starred in one of those films who absolutely definitively just proved there is value. And I think that's amazing. Yeah, and I think that her uh, story in talking to us uh, really touched me um, in, in a specific way related to fandom because it's been my experience that, oh gosh, for, for a lot of people that I've worked with who um, star or you know become famous for being in a cult movie, um, life isn't always easy, whether it's related to the film or related just to life, you know, um, related to show business. Show business is a really hard, fucked up, um, kind of a mean place to try to be, you know, um, uh, a woman, you know, quite frankly, um, yeah. or, or anyone. But I think it's especially hard for women. You know, it's a very it's still a very misogynistic, uh, awful place. So I think with Adrian's story of, you know, attracting a very frightening stalker while living in New York City in the 80s, having it rule her life. I mean, it's its own real life horror movie. She went through something really, really horrible and devastating. But for her to find solace and, and, and true healing through the spirit of her fans like the people listening to this podcast, the kind of people who just love the movie and wanted to show her love, they they feel that love. You know, when I do a show at the Castro, um, and oftentimes, I'll sometimes introduce people to, to an audience, and they haven't experienced that before. They just happen to have starred in a movie, but they haven't experienced their fans yet. Uh, it's a magical thing. It really, really is. And so I think the power of fandom and being... Um, you know, supportive of, of, of these people who did so much for us. You know, they gave us so much. Uh, it, it was wonderful to hear her say that that really turned things around for her. I absolutely agree. And I think that what she talked about, finding that strength and finding that release in the journey is really in many ways what leads us to our next guest and the story that he shared in his new book, The Final Girl Support Group, but also in his connection to Adrian. And Joshua why don't, uh, Peaches, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, <laughs> who that is? How dare you? How dare <laughs> you call me that name? You know what's funny is, I, I, I've, um, this is a total aside for the uh, listeners. Uh, I've noticed that there's certain guests who I forget that they're calling me that name, that other name. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't want to give away some upcoming guests we have, but uh, I'm pretty sure that Malcolm... Ingram might have called me Josh throughout the entire interview when we did the uh, Phantom of the Paradise interview. Right. And I'm like, what about all this illusion I've got going on? Uh, you know. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's funny, too, because when, like, I'm catching up with my parents, I find, like, when I'm t- telling my mom that we've been doing something, 
I literally uh-huh. will switch back and forth between names for you and not even think about it. I was like, well, yeah. Joshua told me and Peaches said, and <laughs> it's just so. <laughs> I think it's, you know, it's one of those things where I, well, I, uh, unlike a lot of drag queens, I actually do go by both names, right? right. So, you know, I, there are certain drag queens like, you know, uh, I never really called Jinx Jarek. I just right. don't, you know, I, I never done that. So anyway, that's a total aside. I thought it was funny. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Back to the show. Um, yes. Our, our, our next guest has written this fantastic book, as Michael said. Um, it completely uh, relates so well to um, Adrian's story. I mean, it doesn't relate. It's, you know, Adrian's story inspired it, I believe. Uh, and, and he is a wonderful writer who's actually had a lot of um, exciting things happen lately, um, which we'll talk about as far as HBO and Charlize Theron getting involved with this book. And, you know, it, it's, it was a real... Um, pleasure to get to talk to him. Another connection of Michael Verratti's. God, tapped in. Uh, so Michael <laughs> Michael brought this guest on. It was a thrill. Uh, without further ado, it's Grady Hendrix. Greetings and welcome back, listeners. Of course, you cannot have a cult without the members who make it up. And luckily, we are now going to be joined not only by an avowed Friday the 13th fan, but a best-selling author, journalist, public speaker, screenwriter, known for such works as My Best Friend's Exorcism, The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, and the recently released The Final Girls Support Group. Please welcome to the show, Grady Hendrix. Hey, y'all. How's it going? Great. Oh, my gosh. We are so thrilled to have you here. I just read your book and love it. And I know Michael's a big fan of it as well. So it's a total thrill to have you here for our uh, Friday the 13th celebration. Oh, dude, I am so excited. And like Friday's my franchise. Like I was just rewatching a bunch of them. And, you know, Halloween, like, I appreciate the Laurie Strode, Michael Myers dynamic, but Halloween's the one where you can just tell, like, Mustafa Akkad's like, I don't want any jokes. No jokes in any of these (laughs) movies. And then, like, Nightmare on Elm Street, like, as much as I like individual movies, there's something really, A, Freddy has no off switch, and he's like a hyperactive child, and you just want to be like, less is more, dude. But B, (laughs) there's something, it's sort of the squickier franchise, like, Freddie's always like, you know, putting his hand up between people's legs and, you know, bad touches and licking faces and coming out of people's <laughs> bodies and stuff. And and I feel like Friday for me is like just firmly right between those two poles. Um, and, you know, it's like the Freddy kills are really ridiculously over the top. But Michael Myers, like he crushes your skull, he stabs you with a butcher knife or he picks you up and hangs you on a hook. And I admire the commitment, but like I like Jason's variety. So that's my long-winded way of saying I'm really happy to be here. Yay! <laughs> well, I, I think that then it begs the question, do you remember when you first really engaged with this movie? Because it seems like very much part of the DNA of what you do now, especially based on the loving uh, exposition you just gave about why you like this franchise. What are the origins of you and Friday the 13th? Well, you know, I came to horror the way I think a lot of people do, which is watching horror movies with my friends at like sleepovers. And so we didn't really do the slasher franchises so much. I realize now like the nightmare movies were coming out. The Friday movies were already being made fun of, you know, and um, the Halloween movies, you know, Halloween went on such a long hiatus after three. So it was like, we didn't really do the franchises, but 
I had come to Friday in a really sort of primal trauma way when I was eight. Um, Cause I wasn't allowed to see R rated movies. And so I would like read the comic book adaptation for like alien or like the mad magazine parody for jaws and like pretend I'd seen them. So people in carpool didn't think I was a loser. <laughs> and, um, and the mad magazines were, were problematic because like, you know, they were parodies. So I had to be really careful about what plot points I recounted. Um, and, uh, and so I realized that I was, we were at Cub Scout, after a Cub Scout meetings, we went to this gas station for snacks and we went to the Oasis gas station and they had a copy of Fango. I think it was like April 81. And it's the one with uh, Ms. Voorhees' head on the cover from Friday part two. Classic. And so I, I convinced the scoutmaster, like, it's reading. I could use my snack money to buy a magazine. And I was obsessed because they did a whole feature just on the opening of Friday Part 2. Um, it has Adrian in it. And, you know, it's got the 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 killing and all that. And the Pamela Voorhees' head in the fridge. And I remember even then being like, my mind was blown. Like, here's a character from a previous movie. And she's in this one and she survived all that stuff. And they're just killing her off in the first few minutes. Um, and are you guys going to talk to, Ad- you're talking to Adrian, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Have you asked her this story about shooting that scene? She and I have talked about it. And I think that we'll definitely be bringing it up yeah. here. Yeah, it's wild. And like, you can see it in the movie when you look at the shots, you know, it's a one and done for her. So anyways, I'll let her tell that story. But so, yeah, and that just really stuck with me. And that's sort of, as a kid, I always like to imagine, like, meeting people from movies like, you know, Chuck Norris or The Terminator or, like, whatever. Um, but this was the first time I imagined someone's life off screen because between the end credits of Friday 1 and the beginning of Friday 2, this whole life existed for Adrian, for Alice Harding. And so that really stuck with me. And that was a really primal thing. So, yeah, that was a big deal for me. Which clearly uh, has led to this great novel in many ways, right? Like the, oh, you can in a look lot back of ways. at you can look back at that and go, oh, that's that's where the seed was sown for you to come up with this incredible story. And of course, we're not going to do um, spoilers on the episode, but we we should say that you know if you are a fan of horror movies, and spe- especially if you're a fan of the slasher films. Um, this book is so full of Easter eggs and nuggets, and it's obviously written from a place of love from from the point of view of a fan and as someone who's built kind of a career out of um, being a fan you know I get to celebrate movies you know even though I've made movies and I write scripts and stuff it's really comes from a place of being a fan of these things and um, reading your book I was like oh I think Grady is like one of us like he's (laughs) he's truly in the cult you know and someone could read your book who doesn't necessarily know as much about the genre Um, And and totally enjoy it. And it's a completely um, fabulous story that stands on its own. But clearly, you've thrown in a ton of Easter eggs, uh, nuggets, references. Um, And I I wanted to ask you about that. Like, you got to imagine what it was like for um, these characters you created who, you know, aren't so loosely seemingly inspired by, you know, the real life women who played these, you know, roles in the slasher films. What was it like? you know, imagining all that. It was weird. Like, 
you know, there's so many questions I had over the years. Um, and like really reading that Fang Fangoria issue and um, and then a few years later seeing Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors where Heather Langenkamp shows up to be the, the group therapist for the kids in the uh, institution. Like both those things were sort of where this book comes from. And so I've thought about it a lot and it was really, it was funny when I wrote the first draft of this book, like Lynette's point of view was mine, you know, oh, if this happened to me, I'd be totally weaponized. I'd like, you know, learn martial arts and have a bunch of guns and like, you know, be take, you know, take precautions. And I realized that, you know, the few times I've actually been in physical altercations, they just don't go the way you think they're going to go, you know, <laughs> and like, and I realized that all that stuff was just posturing on my part you know if i was if i was in that position all that training all that preparation would just be a sad coping technique and like you know and it was and so once i got that down and sort of lynette's voice the rest just like came out i mean it was like you know why isn't there a black final girl? Well, because they whitewashed her for the movies, you know? Why isn't there a final girl in a wheelchair? They take a lot of abuse in those films. And it was really, really fun. Like, it was really nice to hang out with these imaginary friends for so long. And, you know, one of the things about final girls for me with, you know, I was born in 72, so I'm like, probably a little younger than almost all of the original crop is they've all got this real big sister energy to me, you know, like, and it's kind of like, and maybe that's the, you know, you see Laurie Strode being a babysitter and taking care of those kids. I don't know. But like, I, it's just really, I find them really comforting. Yeah. I mean, I know my, Michael and I were talking about it earlier, Michael, you, you should pick up, but yeah, I really relate to so much of what you're saying. And um, part of the comfort for me was that they are strong women. And yeah. I, you know, I actually needed to see more strong women in movies. Well, can I say something? Sorry, I know, Michael, you want to say, I just want to say something really quickly. But see, that's the thing, though, with them. I'm not sure they are strong women. Like, I feel like they're not particularly better than the other people in the movie. I mean, I love Carol Clover's book, uh, Men, Women, and Chainsaws. But I don't think there's any, that that's what I kind of love about them is they're all strong. Everyone's strong. Like, do you know what I mean? You right. just, like, these are just the women who don't give up, who don't stop, you know? I, I don't know. I'm not trying to, like, pick names. I'm not saying you're wrong because I totally know what you mean. But I just right. mean, like, there is something about it where it's like, if you just dig deep, you've got that, you know, that mm -hmm. I really like. No, and I think that's a really important point because, you know, we talked about how you came to this movie. You, you became obsessed through a Fango article and then sort of retroactively revisited. And and growing up during a certain time where we had this sort of onslaught of final girls, we have Laurie Strode, we have Alice Hardy, we have Nancy Thompson and all of the offshoots and all of the different movies. And we as horror fans tend to celebrate them in a certain way. And what I think is really important about the Final Girl support group and what I told you when you so graciously sent me a copy of it to read and that I'm still thinking about months later is how you not only created this book that's an Easter egg-filled celebration for people who love these movies, but as I told Peaches on the phone earlier, it's sort of a requiem and a reckoning for our obsession with final girls as well. Because I think that you also beg the question about why we're obsessed with this violence that's visited upon these, these women as well. And you're sort of asking horror fans to take a knee and look at it from a different viewpoint than we do from the sheer popcorn 
entertainment of it all. And uh, I, I feel like that I assume was very deliberate, but could you oh, talk yeah. a little bit about that, that switch over? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. Like, so I'm actually rewatching Scream right now because uh, someone wants to do an interview where we talk about the entire franchise. So I'm like, okay, it's a chance to watch them all in a row. And after writing this book, watching the opening of the first Scream movie is really hard. That is, I mean, Drew Barrymore goes down bad. Like, and it is rough. Like, and and Nev Campbell, like, I'm older now. Like, I, I think she's probably my age. I think she's a year older. But, like, when I saw the movie, she's my age. Now I look at her in 1996, I'm like, oh, my God, you're a child. Like, you know, like, she's so frat. I mean, it's just weird to watch it again. I feel very, like, protective. Right. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, one of the things that really weirded me out when I was like starting to write this book is that, you know, the icons, as much as they're the final girls are also Jason and Freddie and Michael, you know, they're the ones on the merch. They're the ones who were on the posters, but like, they're the killers. Like, but that, that's sort of of a piece where it's like, you know, you know, everyone knows OJ, but Nicole Brown Simpson's corpse gets a little lost. Um, you know, someone was saying to me when I was talking to them in an interview, they were like, well, don't you think it's a little unrealistic that like, I don't know that like, there's this world where like, there's all this pop culture entertainment's built on these real life murders. I'm like, Jeremy Irons won an Oscar for playing Klaus von Bülow murdering his wife. Like, we celebrate people who kill women. Like, we really, like, reward them disproportionately. Um, and, you know, it's it, so... And when I started writing this book, I was, like, looking through the movies and, like, the cast lists and stuff. Because I was like, oh, you know, I, I had a moment where, Peaches, you you were saying with the names. Where I was like, you know what? Every name's going to be from a slasher movie. Every single name. Like, the final girls are a little bit, not so much, but every other name, first and last, right from a slasher movie. And I started to notice so many people in those movies have a first name and no last name. Or their name is their job title. And, like, dude... I'm watching Friday the 13th part four. I don't want to get hung up on like victims rights, right? I'm there to have a good time. Um, <laughs> but but it is sort of when you step back and look at it, I think it's possible to love these movies and to sort of interrogate your love of them at the same time. And that's certainly what I was doing with myself with these. It's like, why have I spent 40 years of my life watching people getting murdered for fun? Like what's, what's up with that? <laughs> what's right. wrong with me? I think it's so, it's such a great question to ask. I think it's something um, we deep down inside try to answer for ourselves because, yeah. you know, I know that I'm a fan of these things. I've loved slasher films um, since I was a kid. I, my, my my real gateway drug was Freddy Krueger, you know, as a, as a kid because I loved how sassy and fabulous and awful he was. And I loved, I loved Nancy. I loved that she was, a, you know, kind of a nerd. She was the more bookish one. She figured out how to set the booby traps and, you know, do all that stuff. And and just like you, where it really sealed the deal was with Dream Warriors. The yeah. idea that Nancy would come back as an adult, even though it was like a few years later, you know, um, really like well, at the time it was very believable that she would have aged, you know, 15 years or whatever. Um, but yeah, it was like, it just, the, 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 the idea of creating this universe, but a big part of it for me was obviously that it was fantasy. And yeah. as a young, 
you know, sissy or whatever. I think a lot of people who are drawn to horror, you know, whether straight, gay, whatever, feel like outsiders, you know, maybe don't fit in as well. And um, who, who really become connected. And it doesn't align with this idea of saying to yourself, I enjoy watching women get killed because that's yeah. not what it's about, right? Like there's something else deeper, but it's hard to sort of uh, get to that place. And, and you know, I was women's studies minor in college. Like I was very conflicted by my love of horror and exploitation films and showgirls or whatever. <laughs> and, you know, also identifying as a feminist. Um, yeah. And how can we be both? So I loved that your book, you know, it, it shifts the way we think about these people and, and sets them in, an, in a world where the conceit is, this is real. This is, yeah. this is real. Well, and you know, and it's one of the reasons, because for me, what it really comes to, and you know, it's some, it's something I find really nice about Adrian's story, because for a lot of these women who played these parts, their relationship to these movies is very much their character's relationship. They're a teenager, they do something that seems mm -hmm. totally normal, go to summer camp, be in a movie, um, and they wind up being, you know, those are really physically intense roles. They're emotionally intense, a lot of screening, a lot of fear. Um, they're often not for production companies that are going out of their way to make the actors comfortable. <laughs> like, right. You could say a lot of things about Sean Cunningham, but probably like a really sweet guy with actors might not be one of them. Um, <laughs> but, and, and so... And then it haunts you for the rest of your life. Like, you know, you have a relationship to this thing that you did as a teenager forever. Um, and it's how people define you and how they think of you. And it's one reason I find Adrian's life so fascinating that she and all these women, I mean, Heather Langenkamp went on to be a props person and like does these special effects builds. And, uh, you know, Adrian had the career as a ADR and dialogue looper. And they all go on to have lives, even though especially in Adrian's case, it was really traumatic and they had a lot of bad stuff happening to them at the time. And. That's the thing with Final Girls. Like, they, and that's what I realize is like the horror movies I come back to. I love Dario Argento as much as the next person. I don't rewatch a whole lot of Dario Argento. Like, I'll see Suspiria whenever it's on the big screen because it's beautiful. Um, and, and also, you know, she gets away. But like, you know, I, I'm not watching Tenebrae, going out of my way to watch Tenebrae. You know, it's just like, it's too dark. It's like, I realize I watch these movies to some extent to see someone survive, to see them get through it, to see the worst thing that can happen happen, and it's okay. They'll live. Well, and I've had this conversation about Laurie Strode from Halloween a few times, but as, as you were talking and Peaches was talking, I started to kind of put together in my brain this idea. You know, often when we talk about horror, horror in of itself is a genre that lends itself to stories of otherness. And when you have conversations about that, frequently we want to look at the monsters as other, the creature from the Black Lagoon, the Frankenstein monster. But what you, when you look at the final girls, they're other too. Yeah. Because there's a whole world against them. And what you were saying about that going beyond the screen, I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis is sort of an exception to the rule in a lot of ways. They a lot of these women, for better or worse, became defined by this movie, which then caused them to be othered by an industry. Yes. And it's yeah. so fascinating. Yeah. Well, and that's one reason I I haven't 
people like sort of wince when I say this, but I really love Halloween H2O just because it's such a nice ending to the Michael Myers, Laurie Strode story. And I, like, I like the reboots fine and everything, but like, it's such a, but sh you can tell in that movie that her character thinks of herself as a freak. And if she tells people what happened to her, they will reject her. And, you know, within the fictional constraints of these characters' fictional biographies, yeah, <laughs> people yeah. will. They're yeah, a survivor. I, Everyone else died. Why not you? And I love that you uh, like H2O. I also am a fan. Same. Um, and, and, and reading your book, and again, don't want to give too much away, but, you know, I think we can say that the lead character... As you described, Lynette, um, in this sort of way of, of learning martial arts and and you know really protecting herself and, and and coming up with plans and systems, I was thinking about the latest Halloween, um, you know, where Jamie Lee Curtis returns, and yeah. you know she's kind of like the Sarah Connor of of Final Girls, right? Like, and I have to say, I really like the way that you did it in your book. Not to say anything bad about the movie, but I felt like they maybe pushed it a little too far. Like it was a, it wasn't sort of set in the universe of Halloween anymore. It was like we were in a Terminator movie or something. <laughs> um, whereas in your book, I felt like it really, it was steeped in reality. Um, and that, that freak uh, sense of, okay, I can afford to buy these three expensive locks. And I, you know, these are the things I'm, and these are the plans I'm hanging on to. I really appreciated the way that you said it in reality. And this is not what my next question is. My next question is actually going to be about, because um, I know we've talked about Heather Langenkamp a lot. Uh, and, you know, th there's a character named Marilyn in the book, for those of you who haven't read it. Um, obviously, there's a character named Adrian. Um, you know, and Marilyn's character is as very uh, wealthy and, and successful and maybe not like the the, the real-life Marilyn. Her, her name was inspired by uh, I, I'm assuming, and yeah. Heather in the book is, you know, kind of a mess. You know, she's really struggling. She's got some uh, some problems. She's So I, I have to ask, like, have you, besides Adrian, because we know Adrian's read it, obviously, because she does the audio book, but uh, <laughs> ha have you heard from Heather about the book? So, okay, so I did send a copy of the book just recently to Danielle Harris, because Danny's named okay. after her. Um, and... It took me a while to get in touch with her and like it was just hard to get a response because uh, I think she's really busy anyways. Um, but Heather, I'm terrified to because <laughs> I like the reason Heather is such a mess in the book is if someone in my dreams was trying to kill me, I would be self-medicating for the rest mm -hmm. of my life. Like, right. that's just right. reality. And um and she's a mess, but she's also, she was so much fun to write. Like, so much fun to write. And Dialogue is um, amazing. So good. <laughs> she's so great. Like, and, and she really has her moment. And so I've been really nervous about sending it to Heather Langenkamp because I'm really worried she won't take it the right way. Uh, also, it's harder to get in touch with her. Um, the other person I really want to get it to is Nev Campbell. But I also... I don't know what her relationship is to the franchise. I know she's doing the new one, but like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's like for some people, I feel like their relationship with the franchise may be a little more arm's length. You right. know, I get the feeling, you know, I mean, Adrian has a winery called and, and does, you know, uh, uh, Crystal Lake wines. Like she yeah, clearly right. has a comfortable relationship with the franchise. Well, and I wanted to ask about that because this book is clearly inspired by your love of 
the final girls and these franchises and then your exploration of what that relationship means. And as you're talking about getting in touch with Danielle Harris or trying to send the book to Heather or Nev, uh, we know that you connected with Adrian King and Adrian King is doing and has done the audiobook. What's that like to know that this thing that informs so much of your life that it caused you to write a book and now one of the people who inspired it is reading it? That's that's got to be awesome. Yeah, well, it's weird because, I mean, really, like, you know, I'm an eight-year-old kid in a Cub Scout uniform in an Oasis gas station looking at pictures of Adrian in that Fangoria. Like, that is a very direct memory of mine. And I really remember at the time thinking, like, I wish she had a better story here. Like, you know, and so it's kind of like I get to do that. So one is I feel enormously lucky. Like, it's really nice to be able to imagine thing something and then it kind of comes true. It feels weird. Like, I could just imagine that I have a mountain house and maybe I would. Um, <laughs> but the other thing is Adrian has been so incredibly kind. Like, I was really nervous about sending this to her and she was just nothing but nice and kind. And it was so better than I thought it would have been. And so when the audiobook came up, like I was listening, they were sending me narrators to listen to, and they were all fine. There was nothing wrong with them. They were all good professional audiobook narrators, but it was like it was missing something. You know, it was missing a little sweat, a little grittiness. And then I asked Adrian if she'd done that kind of work. I was like, oh no, that's what happened. I was like, why aren't you guys going out to people like Adrian? Like she's done voiceover work before. And so then they just called her and offered her the gig. And, but they like <laughs> wanted, they wanted her to like audition and stuff. So we had to arrange all that and get all that worked out. But, um, but it was just like, it's so nice to have her doing it. I like, I, you can't buy that passion. Like for the other people, it would have been a job and they would have given it their all and they would have done a professional job. For Adrienne, I felt like it meant something to her personally, and that makes a huge, huge difference to me, and I think to the recording. Having read the book now, I look forward to listening to her read the book as well. And um, I would say this, uh, I, I don't know Heather at all, um, other than having shared an elevator ride once with her while I was, uh, it, it, this is a hilarious little, I was in the elevator with uh, Cassandra Peterson and both of us were out of drag. We were, we were at a convention in Indianapolis and they had a special elevator for the talent, quote unquote. And so it was me and Elvira out of drag. And then Heather and Amanda Wiss got into the elevator. And I audibly gasped like a dork <laughs> because, you know, I could not believe that Nancy and Tina just like fucking walked onto the elevator. And much like you, you know, getting to work with Adrian, this was just an elevator ride. And I have luckily met a lot of my idols. I audibly gasped, then nervously told them how much I was a fan and how much I loved them. And you could tell they were having this sort of reaction of like, shit, we're stuck in the wrong elevator with this loser, <laughs> you know? Uh, and then Cassandra Peterson, God bless her, can tell that these two aren't responding the way she thinks they should respond. So she starts saying, oh no, no, you don't understand. This is Peaches Christ. This is Peaches Christ. We're here for the convention too, you know, and they don't recognize Cassandra. So I'm like, yeah, and this is Elvira, you know, and then Heather, <laughs> Heather and Amanda very much lit up. And we, we, you know, we saw each other throughout the convention and I honestly stayed nervous. They were the two people that I was so excited to meet. And I only had that one moment, but Heather was so warm and so friendly. And um, my sense uh, based on well, one thing I want to say is your book in so many ways is this marvelous, wonderful 
exploration that I think Wes Craven first kind of introduced to the world with New Nightmare. Uh, this concept of a, of a story steeped in these the real people's lives. Of course, in your book, these are women who survived, uh, just so the listeners understand, they're, they're women who survived these scenarios in real life, and then the scenarios were turned into movies or franchises, right? Um, yeah. A new nightmare, it's a little different. They're the, 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 they're the stars from the movie, um, but it's exactly what you described earlier, where this thing, being in this movie, it's like surviving the trauma. You know, you're carrying it with you for the rest of your life. And my sense is, also based on just watching Heather's documentary, that she very much has had that experience. And even still, I, I would think that she'll understand where you're coming from. And I do yeah. love that character in your book. Oh yeah, no thanks. I um and I meant to say also I forgot the other person I was in touch with who I gave the book to who really liked it was Caroline Williams from Texas Chainsaw uh, Two Stretch, um and she's been great. She's she's one of those people. Adrian responds with corresponds with very long emails, and Caroline's one of those women who does like it's a one sentence email, but like she <laughs> means the sentence, which has been funny. But no, it's um it would be great to do something with her. There was originally. There was some interest from Good Morning Sunday to do a thing with all the final girls and talk about final girls, all that, which was great. And Caroline was going to do it and Adrian and, and Danielle when we that was when we first reached out to her and um, everyone seemed on board. And then it just, you know, these TV things just evaporate. Um, It'll happen, that though. Been fun. You, you, you know that that's coming, especially based on the the news um, which we should ask you about, like, when, when did you find out that the, the book was going to be turned into a uh, television project? Well, so it's a weird story because I wrote this book in 2014 and I've rewritten it like a dozen times since then. But my publisher just wasn't interested in it. You know, when it was coming out was around the same time when I was showing it to him for the first time, the manuscript, it was... Um, 2015, 2016. And um, that was right when the trade announcement about Riley Sager's Final Girl book had just hit like Publishers Weekly. And he's like, I, I, I don't want to do this. Um, and I tried again a few years later. I'd rewritten it and I trunked it. And my manager had asked me, who does all my screenwriting stuff, if I had anything. And I was like, yeah, sure. I mean, you can look at this. I mean, no one seems to like it. And he was like, no, this is really, this, there's something here. So I did another rewrite and worked on it with my agent. And, um, and then he actually optioned it to Annapurna right in the wake of the Halloween reboot, because when that opened big, everyone's like, we're some final girls. And so <laughs> we had some. Um, and uh, then we just could never get it to work with Annapurna. We just like we really tried and we, we found some writers and just it just wasn't coming together. And they were great about it. I mean, they did a lot of work with us. But um, but off that option is how we sold it to a publisher, you know, to be like, hey, this is an option, you know. Um, and so the option expired and, and it, that happens, you know, um, the check cleared. That was good. Um, <laughs> but uh, and then. You know, as the book's about to come out, we start getting into this thing with these other people for, you know, selling the right, optioning the rights again. And man, this HBO deal was just grueling. It was like seven weeks because, you know, there was me and my reps. And then like, you know, there's Charlize Theron and her reps and her production company, Denver and Delilah. There are the machetes. Like there was HBO. Like there were all these. It really was um, 
I just talked to one of the producers involved in it and we've all got this sort of like, yeah, like we've, we, we, I feel like we're all those guys on that mountain in the Andes and like, we just got rescued and we're all trying not to talk about our friend we ate. Like we're all just, <laughs> a, we've, we've been through something together and we're just not talking about it. Well, maybe you need a support group for the final girl exactly. support group. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, it's funny, like I really love support groups. So it was like, I've, I've been in a few. So it's like, it was really nice to write about one that would like works. <laughs> uh, so, you know, when, when we started the conversation, uh, we began with the love of Friday the 13th and how it got you here and uh, this amazing book. And I'm so glad that we've spent time just kind of peeling back the onion of, of final girls and, and all of these things that inspire you, because ultimately that's the ongoing legacy of movies like Friday and Nightmare and Halloween. And I guess that what I would like to ask you is why? I mean, in terms of why, I know that you look at something like Friday comes out at the beginning of the 80s and changed the zeitgeist. Yeah. And we see all of these other slasher franchises come out and, and we hook onto these ideas and clearly you're obsessed with it enough to carry it with you through the years to write a book. Peaches is obsessed with it. I'm obsessed with it. All of our friends who love these movies and worship these movies. But it is a kind of a specific avenue of horror, right? It's not yeah. Hammer. It's not Creature Features. It's not Jaws. It's the, the beleaguered girl who has to survive the night. And I'm just curious as someone who I, I kind of consider now an expert on Final Girls, why do we keep returning to this? You know, I think it's one of the things that I think is really interesting about where we are culturally right now to sound like a completely pompous ass <laughs> is that um, people are so self-conscious about f franchise entertainment. Um, and, and I feel like it's not really franchise, but there's something to the formula um, you know, it's why some people are super devoted to professional wrestling. It's why some people are super or were, I don't know really if they are anymore, but super devoted for soap operas. I mean, my grandmother, when her stories were on, her stories were on. Like, <laughs> yeah. that was it. You know, or why, like, I don't know if y'all remember gothic romance novels. I mean, those books follow such strict conventions. And there's something about these pieces of entertainment that, like, they follow real rules and you can replicate them with minor variations over and over again. It's they're they're fairy tales almost. They're they're bedtime stories. We want to hear the same stories again and again that we heard when we were a kid. Like whenever we all encountered that thing that's ours, we encountered it in an age when like that piece fit our jigsaw puzzle. And now as adults, I think we return to that with that sort of tell me a story. And I want it to be the one with the monster and the girl who gets away. And, you know, and I want it this time to be on a ski resort, you know, like we yeah. want it to be different, but not too different. And there's so much comfort there. And I find something really sweet about the fact that the story we keep returning to is the one where the girl gets away. I love that. And I think... Um, you know, I, I think I could talk to you forever. I hope we, we can have you back on the uh, podcast in the future. But before we um, let you go, I do have to ask, because this is the Friday the 13th, you know, celebratory cult uh, uh, dedicated podcast. We know there are a lot of movies and a lot of kills. So two questions. What is your favorite of the franchise? What is your favorite film of the Friday the 13th franchise? And what's your favorite kill? 
Okay, I'm only answering this if I get y'alls as well. Um, but so my favorite movie, hands down, is two. And it's funny, I went to rewatch it about five years ago because I just hadn't seen it since I was a kid. I've seen the other ones and I just had never, and I realized I'd never seen it. I had it so ingrained in my mind from reading the magazine and then knowing about it. And I'd seen like clips of the, I'd never watched it all the way through. And it is a legit good movie. Like it's, you know, within its confines of being low budget and all that, like it's head and shoulders above one. Like, you know, Sean Cunningham cannot, He's not a director. Uh, and it's <laughs> it's so well done. And like, I, I really like Baghead Jason. I think he's terrifying. Um, but I have to say, in terms of um, kills, and it's only because there's a Return of the Living Dead uh, um, link, is in five when Spider from Return of the Living Dead, whose name is an actor completely eludes me right this way, gets killed in the outhouse, the like porta potty. I love that just because it's him from it's I think his name's Demon in uh, Friday Five. And I'm just like, oh, it's like seeing an old friend. And I was so sad to see him go. So it's the kill I always remember. <laughs> That's Miguel Nunez, right? Yeah, Miguel Nunez. Thank you. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wait, so y'all, what are favorite movies, favorite kills in the franchise? Peaches, take us away. Oh, gosh. I mean, I, I feel I feel silly now because I probably... For me, it's definitely between one, two, and six. Um, I guess I would still say one because of Betsy and the final act of the film. Um, so I, I'll, I'll stick with one, part one, but I totally agree with everything that you said. And then this is going to sound ridiculous. You guys might have, probably Michael will know, but I can't remember which film this is from, but it's the kill where he takes the kids and takes the sleeping bag yes. and just sort of take grabs the end of it. So they're kind of wrapped up in the bag. And then, you know, with his with his super strength, swings it around and smashes the bag into the tree. That's is that seven. six? Seven? The seven. Okay. Yeah. I knew. Yeah. Of course, Michael would know, you know. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, gosh, my favorite. It's, it's tricky. Uh, I really in many ways love every movie in this franchise the original paramount eight i like can even excuse some some things that happen and take manhattan uh because there's a disco dancing boat sequence uh but yeah i think i i love part two and i understand grady's reasons for loving it amy Steele is an amazing final girl Ginny is is really like one of the the greats and of course uh you know i love adrian and i love alice but I have a great affinity for for part six because I think what Tom McLaughlin did with that movie is he not only gave us a Friday the 13th movie, he gave us a universal monster movie. And those are two ideas that really uh, shouldn't work and they do. But like from that yeah. opening gothic, you know, you know, the lightning striking the grave yeah. and like just all the windblown leaves and, and uh, Tom Matthews sort of being our final girl for the movie. It was this, it, it's a kind of a perfect storm of, you can tell Tom McLaughlin grew up loving James Whale horror films, and he made his Friday version of that. Um, I also like the sleeping bag kill, but uh, there's a great kill in part six where they're in the, the uh, camper, and Jason slams the girl's head into the side of the wall, and it pushes through the aluminum. That is so preposterous, and actually by physics not possible, but I love it for that exact reason. <laughs> Right. Well, you know, and actually that's really interesting just when you're saying that about how that's sort of a universal horror movie is one thing I do love about the franchise of Friday is that 
it gives us, it changes so much. Um, there's final boys, there's final yeah. girls, there's final children. You know, like, you know, there's, there's um, outer space. There's outer space. There's zombie Jason. There's baghead Jason. There's normal yeah. hockey mask. There's pan like mom, like Ms. Voorhees. Yeah. Like, like yeah. it's so much variety in there. And then the movies tonally are so different. I mean, you've got like some movies that just feel like they were just like sleazy and cokey. You know, like mm-hmm. five yeah. feels yeah. like a cocaine <laughs> hangover. It feels like a blue Monday, man. Um yeah. <laughs> and like you know, and and four and six are so much fun, and like three is so goofy, and like I don't know, there's so much, and two is legit, I think, scary. Like there's just so yeah. much variety in Friday. Yeah, and also the only franchise where the primary villain isn't always the killer at the end of the film. So that's right. Yeah, that is true. And I have to say, selfishly, as as a Friday the Thirteenth uh, nerd, I'm very very glad that my three favorites, one, two, and six, were the selections from amongst the three of us. So if if you are listening at home and that wasn't your selection, you're wrong. <laughs> I feel like it's good just, yeah. you know, a right and a wrong. Like people need to know which side they're on. Sorry to have to inform you of this, but you are wrong. Uh, and, and with that, Grady, we want to thank you so much for coming and taking the time out to... Uh, talk to us. We would love to have you on again. You're definitely a, 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 a we, we call our, our family, the children of the popcorn. And I, <laughs> I, I, I feel as though you are one of the children. So thank you so oh. much for coming on. Dude, anytime I was just, I just rewatched the first three children of the corns. And if y'all ever oh. want to talk about urban harvest, man, I am so yeah. there. Um, it's I so ridiculous. I have a lot to say about Urban Harvest. Charlize Theron <laughs> is in Urban Har- Harvest, right? Or, oh or is she, she wait, is. She's in is one she? of the Children of the Corn. She's either in the second or third one. And I think she's in the one in Chicago, which is Urban I, Harvest. Yes, I think you're right. I think you're right. Holy crap. I got to go look at the credits now. But yeah, I'll be on anytime. I could talk about this stuff all week long. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And listeners, please, please, please pick up. Grady's new book, The Final Girl Support Group. It is uh, literally life-changing. I'm not saying that just because he's sitting here listening. Uh, I read this book in two sittings. I've been thinking about it for months, luckily, because I got to read it early, and I'm obsessed with it. If you are a horror fan but also love to dig deeper, this is the book for you. Go, go get it. Thank you again, Grady. Thank y'all. And that was our conversation with Grady Hendricks, which I cannot even, one, say enough great things about this book. But two, I really love that through his fandom, Grady has sought to dig deeper and explore what it means to love these things. And in a way, it just shows how much he loves it, you know, because some people like it's just watching it is enough and that's good. And he's like, no, I need to understand the sociology and psychology of what drives me to this material, which on the outside could be and seem uh, kind of dark. And I love that. I love it. Yeah, I thought I, I love the book, too. I thought he was uh, just wonderful. Someone someone that I would just like want to talk to forever if I could. You know, he's yeah. just really great conversationalist and just has really great and interesting ideas. And especially enjoy how he has put the final girls in the spotlight. They are, like you said earlier, they are um, getting this moment, you know, that they don't normally get as the final girls, you know? And I think 
it's been really interesting watching and seeing um, Jamie Lee Curtis especially have this sort of like very late in life explosion of a whole new franchise built off her character, you know, built off her character. Not, you know, it's not Michael Myers. These new movies, this whole thing is built around, you know, Laurie Strode, you yeah. know, <laughs> as a senior citizen. Holy shit, that is amazing and wild. And I love that we're finally saying, yeah, fucking hell, the final girls are where it's at. These are, you know, these are the characters we really care about. I mean, I do care about the the slashers and stuff. They're the fun, they're the, they're the you know, the, the sort of great antagonists of this stuff. But it's this, the, the women that have held these stories, the fighters that, you know, um, Grady writes about so eloquently. Well, I do think, you know, credit where credit's due, these these characters, as you mentioned earlier, uh, for, for those of us who are in the know or the nerds who have been embracing this all along, we always kind of loved them. You know, you, to- you told the story about Heather and the poster from Dream Warriors. I remember my first Nightmare movies were four and five because it was just around the time that I was becoming aware of them. And so I'm I had a gr- so much younger than you, Peaches. Oh. <laughs> um, you bring it up every episode. And all, and all it's doing is making you older. That's- <laughs> that's, I, I guess that's true. Grandma um, over here. But uh, I had an affinity for Lisa Wilcox as Alice because she's the final girl of both of those movies. And I remember, especially because in those movies, she takes power from her community. And all. I probably later was like, oh, there's a queerness to this that I relate to. But um, it took kind of entrenched fans to really attach to those characters because the marketing was always the monsters. It was always Freddy. It was always Jason. It was always Michael. And in his prescient meta way, we owe a lot of the shift to Wes Craven, I think, because, you know, Mm -hmm. you talk about how he shifted Heather back into the spotlight for New Nightmare and said, no, this is part of her journey. And even more so in Scream, what really kind of the, the main character of Scream is Nev Campbell. It's Sidney Prescott. It's not yes. the killer. I mean, because the killer is like a rotating door of, uh, you know, Agatha Christie whodunits, but she's the constant, which was sort of really yeah. a first in the in any horror franchise. And so I, I love that natural progression of us over four decades kind of getting hip to like, oh, no, we should be paying attention to this girl, you know, whoever she may be. And if you relate to that at all, I would strongly encourage you on this Friday the 13th to treat yourself to Grady's fantastic book. Um, it, it just, it's, it, I mean, I read it so quickly. It's just such a delight. And, and it has a lot of like uh, sort of he- heavy themes going on, you know? So it's not just this sort of silly fluff piece. It, it's, a, it's, a ch- it's a good challenging book for any fan. So... Oh, gosh, I can't believe another Friday the 13th has come and gone, Michael. Now, will you um, will you uh, watch one of the films to celebrate the holiday? I will. I always do. I usually just pick one. I have uh, the Blu-ray box set, and I just select one of the original Paramount 8 because I'm devoted. I do like Jason Goes to Hell and Jason X, but if it's an actual Friday the 13th, I want to pick a movie with the, with the title Friday the 13th. So uh, we're recording a few days before. I'm not sure which one I'll select, but you know, because of this podcast, I might just go back to the OG. I know. I think I actually was thinking the same thing. I think I might do a double feature of one and two um, and, and, you know, 
but but definitely one for sure. I, I, yeah. I would love, I mean, just, you know, just getting to meet her and, you know, get to talk to her on the podcast. I want to go and enjoy part one all over again. And it's so special. And obviously without part one, we wouldn't be having this conversation today. So no, this, this whole date wouldn't mean shit. So, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you're listening to this, we just want to thank you because you are all children of the popcorn now. Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production. <laughs>